Between the Lines on News Talk. Welcome to this special edition of Between the Lines with me, Steve Daunt, standing in for Andrea Gilligan today. This is a program about living with a disability. This is a big moment for Irish commercial radio. As you will hear only the voices of disabled people. Both as guests and as a presenter. Later in the show, I am joined by a panel to discuss what it means to be disabled in Ireland today. But first, I'm delighted to be joined by Robin Barnett, the UK ambassador to Ireland. Who has a very special interest in disability. Hello, Steve. It's great to be with you, and I'm really grateful for the invitation. We better start with your personal interest. You were born with a disability? Absolutely. I was born with uh, something called hemiplegia, which meant that the right side of my body is only partly functional. It took quite a while before people really realized what the problem was. It was certainly not picked up when I was first born. So it began to have a real impact on my life, I think, probably when I was about uh, three or four years of age. I saw a video you tweeted to mark last year's UN Day and you openly said you were a victim of teasing and bullying as a child. What was that like? I have to say, incredibly difficult to start with. I felt vulnerable. I felt very alone. When someone comes up to you and says, how you're doing, hop along, it doesn't make you feel great. Um, but what I learned to do was to adapt. I tried, first of all, to fit in. Um, so I was hopeless at football, uh, but I went and played football with everybody else. And I think that certainly helped somewhat. But the reality was I did a second thing, which was both good and bad. I built a hard shell around myself so that when people were making unpleasant remarks, they kind of bounced off. But I think if you do that, it also has real implications for the way you handle personal relationships. So it was, uh, I have to say, quite tough. Was there a particular moment where you thought, that's it? This is who I am, let's get on with it. Absolutely. When I was about six or seven, an NHS 
consultant in the UK said I needed to do swimming all the year round. Uh, my mum said we haven't got the money to pay for that. So I was granted access to a hospital swimming pool. The fascinating thing about that was that nearly everybody else in the swimming pool were thalidomide victims because this was, of course, back in the 1960s. So there's me with a bit of a weakness on one side and nearly everybody else with no arms and no legs. In a funny way, that's probably the best thing that ever happened to me because when you've experienced people with really challenging disabilities, you realise, actually, if they can live amazing lives... I certainly can. So from that moment on, I thought, I can't afford a chip on my shoulder. I've just got to get out there and get on with it. Some people have described me as quite determined. And if I had to date back that determination, I would uh, date it back absolutely to those hours spent in a swimming pool with thalidomide victims. Would you agree that the actual challenge that disabled people face is not allowing people to define them by their particular condition, yet making sure society facilitates their needs as citizens? Absolutely agree with that. Um, for me, people need to be treated as individuals. We all have the same passions we all have the same ambitions and we should never be defined by a particular condition. On the other hand, it's also absolutely essential that we help people with disabilities to fulfil their potential. That means addressing issues like access. It means addressing issues like making sure the right assistive technology is available and most of all, it means making sure that people give an equal chance to somebody, irrespective of the fact that they may have a disability of some kind. Some of the most extraordinarily talented people I've ever met are people with disabilities. One great example would be Paralympic athletes. I had a lot to do with them in both Romania and in Poland. And these are people I used to call superheroes because they compete with the same ferocity as their Olympic colleagues, but have to do so under much more challenging circumstances. And frankly, quite often with a fraction of the budget that's devoted to Olympic athletes. You've been a diplomat for how many years now? I have been a diplomat for almost 40 years. Are there areas in the world where your disability has surprised people? Is that the right word? Um, for me, it's, that's a complex question. For roughly the first 25 years of my career, I worked incredibly hard to be defined by anything but my disability. I did all sorts of jobs, including one in Bosnia, which regularly required me to fly around in military helicopters and to go to places which were 
quite challenging from a physical perspective. And I never once said, no, I can't do that. But when I arrived in Romania in 2006, it became clear to me that there was a real desire for more role models. So I reinvented myself as a person with a disability and went round challenging stereotypes. There was once a report uh, which said that a very substantial proportion of Romanians who'd been interviewed were not particularly keen on working with a uh, disabled person. So I went out and uh, challenged that proposition. And what became very clear very quickly was that somehow people had a stereotype of what a disabled person was, but it certainly wasn't the British ambassador to Romania. So I tried to use my job in a positive way to show people that you need to get beyond um, these internal stereotypes that some people have and get out there and really get to understand what being a person with a disability actually means. I found the reaction was fantastic and worked with other people in similar roles to try and support the community for people with disabilities in Romania. It was recently the United Nations Day of the Disabled Person. Why do you think days like that are important? I think they're very important because it bring, they bring the opportunity to focus people in on a specific issue. For us at the embassy, the colour purple has become quite associated with disability. So we took the opportunity to illuminate the British Embassy building in Ballsbridge in bright purple to remind everybody of the importance of the disability issue. And right across the world in different ways, people um, have made statements, organised events, run sporting events to remind people just what a fantastic contribution people with disabilities can make to society. Okay. We'll leave it there. I'd like to thank you for coming in. That was Robin Barnard, the UK ambassador to Ireland. Thank you, Steve. I really enjoyed it. After the break. More on what it means to be disabled in Ireland. Between the Lines on News Talk. Welcome back to this very special edition of Between the Lines with me, Steve Dodd. Sitting in for Andrea Gilligan. This is a program about living with a disability in Ireland. Before I get to my panel, 
Let me tell you a bit about myself. When I was 15, I confessed to an egregious sin. I told an occupational therapist that I wanted to be a journalist. The person's reaction was telling. Journalism? Sure you only type with one finger. She had the good sense not to mention. My sexy baritone voice. So that's something. I never saw this person again. But after meandering through life, I am now 13 years ahead. So what does that fable tell you? Well, you are going to hear the C word a lot. Can't. To succeed, you develop a very thick skin. You ignore people. You develop the smile of an assassin. As you plot your way through the world. But this does not mean I'm a card-carrying member of the Let's See the Ability and Disability Team. No. I am disabled. There's no hiding from that. I do need certain things to make life easier. And if you get that, you will be able to go on a beautiful journey. But I am disabled. Really, I cannot hide it. But I'm also a son, a brother. A lover. A journalist. A box set binge viewer. A sports fan. And whatever I am on a certain day. Over the next hour, you're going to hear from a panel of people. With as many identities as I have just described. Instead of me introducing them, I'm going to start with a quick fire round.
Well, you all have 30 seconds. To introduce yourselves. Let's start with you. <laughs> Lucky me. <laughs> um, I'm Louise Bruton. Um, I am a journalist, a freelance journalist, and I mostly write for um, the Irish Times, Image and Lonely Planet. Um, I'm also a DJ. Um, I, According to Steve, I'm a party animal. So <laughs> um, but um, I write a lot about disability and I... Uh, try to encourage uh, social activities to be as accessible as possible so people can be as young and as reckless as they like to be just like everybody else <gasps> Porik Nocton my day job is as Executive Director of Arts and Disability Ireland and um, we work with artists and audiences with disabilities I'm married to Avril and we live in Artane and uh, I've two girls Grace and Christina 10 and 8 and then um, my wife has two older children who live with us as well. And they're practically grown up. One's in college and the other one's working. And uh, I suppose I've a, a long background in the arts and that's where I would have started. And I suppose eventually it led on to my work with Arts and Disability Ireland because I was the artist with a, a visual impairment, which back in the 90s was a, a strange combination. Hi. I'm Mara Madani. I'm a communications intern with Independent Living Movement Ireland. Hi, my name is James Cawley. I am 26 and I'm from Longford. I suppose my day job is policy officer with the Independent Living Movement Ireland. I'm the youngest of nine, so I suppose that's what's led to me having thick skin and my resilient nature. I think that's really, really important in, in Ireland where it's not really equipped for every disabled person. <laughs> Who was I at 15 or who was my 15 year old self? Mm. God, I was, I think back then you would have said I was SWAT, um, probably more nerdy than SWAT though. I was very into music and very into radio. Pirate radio was a big thing in Ireland at the time. And uh, that was uh, one of the things I I followed a lot because there were, uh, it was an exciting time because stations opened and closed and they got closed by the guards and they opened someplace else. And it was an interesting time. I was in boarding school in Dublin. I had been since the age of four and a half. And I think that made me a particular type of person. I also was quite, I suppose, in some ways frustrated because at that point in my life, I was in St. Joseph's, uh, now Child Vision, where I was a boarder and went to public school, Rasmini. But in many ways, even at 15, I wanted to kind of shake off that disability thing because I felt very trapped and controlled by it. And I suppose that was best signified by the fact that I actually wasn't living in my own home area. I was actually living in Dublin, away from home. And I would say, coming up to my 50th birthday next year, I have never actually re-established or ever got back to having that link that most people, I think, in Ireland growing up in their home communities actually have. 
James, as a person also from the country, does Perig's teen years ring true? Yes, I suppose, as I said, I'm the youngest of nine children, so my parents kind of didn't really treat me any differently at all. And they just kind of treated me as one of the nine and just get out there, fight for your spuds, do everything. If you couldn't kick a ball, go out and crawl after it, etc. So it was that model of normalisation. Um, different to Pork, I was locally educated in the local um, national school. But that was a time when there was no special needs assistance. So I was actually work- looked after by my first year by FOSS workers. And then the introduction of the SNA, I, I got my first SNA. But with saying that having support in education was really, really important, having that SNA to enable me to do things. But it was really, really important for me to be able, for the SNA to be able to step back as well and, and allow me to um, get down on a Friday and play a crawl and tag like with all my classmates and, and to just integrate myself fully into to school as well. But again, yeah, I suppose I was encouraged to do everything, get stuck in and not sit back and let things just go in front of my eyes. Louise, what about your teen years? Can you identify with the lads? Um, I grew up in Maynooth. I had my primary education in, in Maynooth, but then uh, my secondary education was in Dublin. And I was meant to go to school a lot closer to my home. But after I was born, my mum had wanted to put myself and my sister in the same secondary school. And the principal of the secondary school closer to my home asked my mother, who had just had a newborn baby, how would it benefit the school to have a disabled child? So my mum immediately was like, that's the end of that school. And um, we ended up, myself and my sister Laura, we ended up going to school in in Dublin. So commuting to school, we used to leave our house at 10 to 7 every morning, which is terrible don't recommend it <laughs> to anybody so I was on crutches for all my life I only started using a wheelchair when I was about 24 um, so using crutches and being in kind of a mainstream school I had to kind of make do with the facilities that were available and there wasn't a huge amount of understanding of what I needed so my school had six floors not all accessible by a lift and between the ages of 12 and 21, I had so many surgeries on my spine and then kind of repairing surgeries for the damage they did to the spinal surgeries. And I also had my foot amputated when I was 17. So I had a whole psychological whirlwind going on on top of being um, a very angsty teenager. So it was quite difficult in a way because I was trying to, uh, I was quite a kind of an outspoken teenager. So I had to deal with that on top of the fact that I wasn't necessarily very comfortable with being disabled, which is something I've come, I came around to in my 20s, but in my teen years, it was a huge amount of denial, but also trying to be outspoken. Was there any moment when you knew you had to fight as a disabled woman? The big fight, I think, came for me when I was in, in university. I had had two spinal surgeries in my final year of college because I was having chronic back pain. That meant that um, I wasn't sleeping, wasn't eating, um, and that that yeah that tends to not <laughs> bode very well with uh, your general condition of life. And I was unable to attend most of my lectures, and I found that I wasn't having um, I didn't have the brain capacity to actually work on my thesis properly. And I asked to defer a year, but I ended up getting an, a thesis extension. But in in the great um, in the great glory of a lot of universities, I was never actually given a date for that extension. So I panicked and submitted the thesis on the original date as the rest of my classmates and then became this huge kind of furore of not having had the facilities provided for me. 
the only assistance I had in university was free printing and that was it. So everybody printed their thesis with my account, um, <laughs> which is, you know, fantastic. But I was very, I was going through a very kind of mentally difficult time then. And when I got the results of my thesis, I wasn't happy with it. And when I appealed it, my options were either take the result or repeat the year entirely, even though I had initially requested to defer the year. So that was one of those things when those kind of eye-opening experiences that made me realise that the world that non-disabled people live in just can't understand the world that disabled people live in when they refuse to listen to what we need. So I think that was what kind of started me becoming more active with disability advocate activism. Maryam, you're a millennial kid. Do anything hey. of the things you've heard resonate with you? Absolutely, it all resonates very much with me. Um, one of the things our one of our board members, Sarah, has said is that um, all disabled people do seem to do from the cradle to the grave is fight. And I developed quite severe depression from the age of 13. Um, a lot of that, I'm, I'm still on antidepressants. A lot of the depression was caused by also denial about my disability. I also, same as you, Louise, I, I didn't start using a wheelchair until I was about 21. So most of my life I was like trying to pass as normal and like fighting to, you know, compete in a, a normal world and absolutely... Um, denying that I had difficulties and uh, I've come to believe that a lot of that is due to our you've probably all heard about the supergroup model and um, its uh, exact opposite is villain you know like the those are the two main stereotypes of disabled people that you see in the media and what that does is that it makes disability an individual problem that's to be overcome. So we're used to seeing disability as something that is a personal challenge that you either succeed at overcoming and become a super crip or you can't manage that and you end up becoming like a bitter villain. But the reason that that's so problematic is it takes away from the idea of disability as being caused by social barriers and things that are preventing us from surviving in, in the world. And it takes away from the idea of being able to talk about disability from a rights-based perspective because we're, we're constantly seeing it as an individual thing. One of the, the very famous slogans for the Supercrip is the only disability is a bad attitude. So I think a lot of disabled people are struggling with a lot of guilt and shame if we can't, we are having difficulties in our lives and if we can't overcome all of those problems. Uh, so I, one of the reasons I love Independent Living Movement Ireland is that it focuses on the social model of disability, which is the idea that disability is caused by um, the social factors and social barriers and if we learn to stop seeing disability as a case of uh, something that you know you're an inspiration for overcoming or you're a failure for not and we look at uniting together as a movement to overcome structural inequality that also is more empowering than people feeling isolated separately on their own struggling to overcome their personal difficulties is it easier to be disabled and young today? Um, I'm actually not that young. <laughs> but let's just move on past that. <laughs> uh, I think in some ways it's becoming easier in that you are having, I think there's a bit of an improvement in speaking about it in the media, like, but, but the same problems that have always been there are still there. I don't think that's changed too much. I think one of the, the big changes 
is that more and more children with disabilities are being educated in their home communities. And I think that's a huge step forward. You know, in the early 70s, it was the norm to be sent away someplace else to be educated. And that isn't the case now to a greater extent. Uh, You know, James mentioned that when he was in school, there were no SNAs. There weren't. Even when I went to college, I think uh, the only permission and support I got in real terms was being allowed to record the lectures. That was the sum total of support. So, you know, things have changed and they've changed very slowly and they haven't changed enough. But um, I think the other thing, though, is there are new challenges that didn't necessarily face us as we were growing up. And I think social media has a lot to do with that. And I think certainly I hear and see quite a few younger people with disabilities and also not so young who maybe are single on social media and some of the battles that they are facing. And it's actually quite disturbing. And maybe people thought the same things when we were younger, but they didn't have the same avenues to speak them. Um, I might just go on the other side of that, where I think that um, younger people have a greater sense of identity than most generations have ever had, because we're now connected in a greater sense where if you are the only disabled child in Ventry and Kerry, you can know that there's people elsewhere in the country or in your county or elsewhere in the world where you can communicate and you can identify with them and you can see how they move through life and you can kind of learn from them rather than figuring things out by yourself. So the conversation has definitely kind of moved on. Like when you look at the younger people, I'm talking about people under the age of 20, they are just so confident and so open about their sexual identity, their gender identity, their disability identity, kind of race identity, class identity. It's an incredible, incredible thing that a lot of us just didn't have access to Mm -hmm. uh, for generations. So there is a very exciting conversation where people want to hear other people's experiences. They want to hear other people's struggles so that they can be better equipped to kind of help out or just to be there, not even help. Like I'm going to remove the word help from that, but just to be a friend. So I think in that case, I'm quite envious of younger people that they have this freedom that we just did not have. Yeah, I suppose I would say there'd be positive and negative impacts, I suppose, or ideas around social media and particularly the positive with what Louis said around having that kind of collective or that kind of allyship that you can now see that there is um, disabled people that you can link in with. But just like Borg said as well, I think the pressures around social media when we're posting our Facebook or Instagram posts that it's the ideal image of, of our our good days, if you like, and even the ideal image of a body. Um, and I think that can cause issues not just with disabled people but with young people in general and I've seen that across even secondary school as well um, as a teacher that sometimes young people are now not as resilient as we would have been if you like and I think that is due to some of the pressures created around with social media but obviously when it's used correctly I think it can be very positive and impactful as well. Okay, we're going to take a break there. You're listening to Between the Lines on News Talk with me, Steve Dort. Between the Lines on News Talk. Welcome back. 
to the final part of this edition of Between the Lines. Yes! On this program examining what it means to be disabled in Ireland today. I'm joined by Corey Norton from Arts and Disability Ireland. Louise Bruton, freelance journalist. And James Corey and Marion Madani. From the Independent Living Movement in Ireland. Louise, can I start with you? When I was a student in the very early 90s and was going around bars and clubs, I got the sir. You may be a fire hazard line a number of times. Does the fear of spontaneously combusting disabled people still exist? <laughs> yeah, I think we're considered to be basically covered in hairspray and cotton wool and standing next to a firework factory um, because uh, that is that is a line that still gets used today that you're it's a fire hazard to have you in this place it's a fire hazard to have you upstairs things are creeping creeping at a kind of a better pace but it's still not good enough because Dublin and the rest of the country is kind of going under a bit of a a crisis when it comes to construction. So a lot of the kind of social spaces just aren't as readily available as they used to be because they're being turned into very expensive student accommodation for students who cannot afford them and they're being turned into hotels which we will not be staying in or dancing in. So there is a lack of awareness certainly around what should be the correct term of access for kind of uh, clubs and gig spaces and even theatre spaces. And a lot of them just aren't fit for purpose full stop, let alone fit for purpose for people with disabilities. And at the moment, I don't really see things getting better. There are a couple of movements happening next year where it's not just talking about making things better. It's actually putting money where your mouth is and making things better. But the thing is, when it comes to access and it comes to disability, you need money to make a change. It's not just a change of attitude. It's actually a financial investment that people have to make. And that's why we're so far behind and why we're still referred to as fire hazards almost every weekend. I know there was a big news story about accessible Glastonbury a few years ago. What are festivals like? I know the picnic is relatively disabled friendly. Glastonbury is definitely the festival that every festival should look to in terms of how to function because their accessible area is looked after by an external company rather than kind of in-house festival staff. Looked after by Attitude is Everything, which is a UK group. And they started working with Glastonbury, I think, about 11 years ago. And it was 100 people with disabilities who registered for the services 11 years ago. And now I think they're up to about 3,000. So that's what happens when you actually put the correct facilities in place. When people with disabilities know that they can be confident in their decision to go somewhere, that they will have the proper toilets, the proper showers, the space to camp, places to charge their wheelchair, places to store their medication. At the main stage, they have people doing um, sign language to go with all the performers, which is an incredible thing to witness. And when you see the amount of people there um, who are partaking in the sign language, it's phenomenal. Up to 20, 30 people. And you might you might have thought before that why would they want to go to a concert? But when you see that happening, you see how important it is and why it is a service that should be extended outside of a massive festival like Glastonbury. The thing with music festivals, though, is they are outside 
and they are hard going for everybody. So that's the thing you need to have. You need to have kind of a stamina. No matter who you are, you need to have a stamina before mm. you go to the music festival because it's three days of not really sleeping, mm. drinking a lot, and um, standing in the rain. Um, so I do think Irish festivals are a little bit behind in terms of what they could be doing. Positive changes have been made certainly in the last five years. I think maybe about six years ago, um, I would have deemed Electric Picnic disgraceful with its um, facilities, but they changed that. They listened to the criticism and they are doing better. They have, because their their disabled camping site used to be the furthest campsite away from the main arena and now it's the closest. So that was one very (laughs) quick move that they had to do and I just don't know why they didn't do it from the start. But yeah, they, they are tough going, but the thing is the people running them, they want to improve because... Ireland has a very strong relationship with music festivals. Irish people love going to them and we know that they're not just like a passing phase. So as they kind of move on, Irish music festivals want to be the best. They have a reputation and they need to kind of stand up to it. Audrey, you might want to get in here. You have experience as both a consumer of arts and culture and you also help arts organisations to attract disabled audiences. Yeah, well, at Arts and Disability Ireland, we say that we champion the creativity of artists with disabilities and promote inclusive experiences for audiences. And dealing with the audiences, we do less on on the festival front and the requests aren't generally for us coming from there. Uh, We do a lot more with venues, art centres, galleries, museums, theatres around the country. So, for example, Arts and Disability Ireland are very much at the centre of providing captioning, which is like live subtitling and audio description, which is um, verbal description for visually impaired blind people in theatre. So we uh, work a lot with the Abbey Theatre. Uh, recently, we worked on 9 to 5 for the board Gosh, and we've worked with venues all around the country, as well as some of the larger theatre festivals, including Dublin Theatre Festival, Cork Midsummer etc. So that's something we do a lot of and then we also uh, work with um, museums and galleries. We have a long-standing relationship making um, exhibitions accessible to visually impaired and blind people for the Butler Gallery in Kilkenny and uh, we've also trained about 14 educators and curators to audio describe live when a visually impaired a blind person comes to visit their gallery. What have you learned in your time in ADI? I suppose the biggest thing I've learned is that change is slow. Uh, I shouldn't be surprised at that, but the older I get, I kind of, the more I realise it. I think we've done some great things at Arts and Disability Ireland. I'm 14 years with the organisation now, but I do think change around access is very slow. I think originally I thought when I started the work that if we created really good examples of practice that people in the sector would take them on. But I'm still finding that they still describe audiences with disabilities as being ADI's audience rather than their audience. I kind of thought that we would have made more progress in terms of embedding access like audio description, like captioning, like sign language interpreting, many of the services that we would actually have made more progress in embedding those. I do think for artists with disabilities, we've made a lot of progress and there is funding there. 
and the artists are availing of it and we are creating larger scale commissions. Currently we're working with the Project Arts Centre on a 40,000 euro commission for Roderick Ford's The Spider's House, which will be presented next spring in in the beginning of March in the Project Arts Centre and we'll have a run of a week. So there are really exciting things happen, but I think, yeah, the key thing I've learned is that change has happened very slowly. You have a management role in your organisation. Have you ever met any, how shall I say this, awkward moments? Has your authority been questioned? How did you react? That's the type of question that would be far too long of a silence for if I was to take real time to answer it. Um, I'm not too sure. You know, in the big picture, I notice and loads of people will tell you this, particularly people who've who've come from abroad or are from abroad, who've come to work in Ireland, is um, everyone always says yes, but that doesn't mean anything will actually happen. And I think that's the main thing I notice is people are very supportive, very complimentary, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they have your back or vice versa when it comes to making change happen. I think on the day-to-day management role, yes, of course, I get challenged Am I going to give you an example? No. <laughs> I, I think as a manager, you will always be challenged. And I think the key thing is uh, is always to stay listening. I think as a, a manager who manages some staff, including myself, who has a disability, I think flexibility is key. You know, we're a four-person team. 50% of us identify as being disabled. I think that's really important for our organisation But I do think flexibility and being responsive is key. And I suppose I find that sometimes the biggest challenge of of managing is actually is always keeping an ear to what's happening so that you can be responsive. James, your job is to lobby politicians. Are we past the day when people talk to your PA and not to you? Well, I suppose, yeah, part of my job is to lobby politicians and um, another part of my job is also to work with them and kind of uh, educate them around what a personal assistant is versus a carer. And just for those listening as well, that a personal assistant is a tool to enable disabled people to have choice and control in their lives. And what I say is usually they're an extension of my limbs so they'd go under my instruction and, and direction. But um, again, I think the day that when they talk to me and not my PA, I don't think that's come yet because I think there's still an attitude that disabled people need to be, you know, cared for and looked after and integrated and, and fella out in the train for the day out. They don't actually see that I'm actually going up to fulfil a job or just get on with normal life, whatever normal is. But um, no, I don't think we're past that day yet. There's still the, the occasion where they'd ask, does he take many sugars in his tea, etc. And that's when I get to shout at them and say I actually can speak here (laughs) so I don't think we're past today yet but I think there is changes and just on that point as well I remember when I started back in university and I was telling my neighbour that I was up in university and she said to me and how are you going to um how are you going to do that now are you going to commute or who's going to go with you etc so I said I'd have a personal assistant and I'll live up there and um I suppose my point is that uh she was saying that 
how was he going to do it? But I said that uh, I'd ha- I'd have my personal assistant and years on then, I suppose seven, eight, nine years on, people see me now with a personal assistant and they've seen me throughout the years and they actually recognise now that that is James's personal assistant and not his carer and he's well able to get on with life but he comes along with a personal assistant. So I think education it really is key and taking the opportunity to educate people at all times. Are the ideals behind independent living in Ireland understood? Um, no, I don't think they're fully understood, definitely not. I think we're very rich in Ireland about writing policy and drafting policy, um, etc. But we have a big difficulty around implementation of policy. And uh, I've heard at a conference before, um, imp- we have implementation deficit disorder, I think, in Ireland. And I think that's really, really true because when you look at independent living, we look at uh, aspects like pillars of independent living around housing, transport, employment. And for me, again, a personal assistance service is really key. But we need to talk to politicians at both a national and a local level around um, the need for more accessible housing, the need for more universally designed transport. For example, the Lewis, it's so easy for everyone to walk on, walk off, roll on, roll off, do whatever you want to do and um, without assistance and being objectified, really. And then, I suppose, around employment. Um, When we look at employment, how easy to access employment, how easily you can access employment when you have reasonable accommodations, like what Porek said around the flexibility of, you know, work from home or having different accommodations within the workforce. And then, um, I suppose, true to independent living again, for some disabled people, is that personal assistance service. And there's currently no right to a personal assistance service in Ireland. And we've just passed a motion in the Dáil on the 19th of November and it's the start and hopefully the continuation of a debate and a discussion around achieving a right to a personal assistance service for everyone in Ireland. The good news about this show is it goes out after the watershed. We all know what that means. Maryam, <laughs> do you think disabled people are seen as sexy? <laughs> Uh, well, to quote my boyfriend, it's not about your disability, it's about your kissability. Oh. <laughs> it's so, so bad, I know. <laughs> uh, that's something I think is actually really improving. Like, like, like you were saying, Louise, I think we're seeing a lot more about how common that is. I mean, you can just look up on YouTube the amount of interabled couples and people talking about their relationships online. One horrible thing my, my parents' generation had said to me, um, was that the only person who would be with a disabled person was either a saint or a paraphiliac. And that ridiculous thing has stuck with me. And <laughs> I really think that's not true anymore. And disabled people are really being allowed to embrace their sexuality. And it's very important, I think, for healing, for like accepting your body to explore that side of yourself. And I mean, that there's still a bit of discomfort there I remember back when I was on like dating on tinder apps you know you go through the should I put a profile with my disability on when do I bring up that I have a disability and you know if I would post a profile without a picture of well you can't see that I'm in a chair you know my comments and responses would go way up but at the same time I think people are a lot more open now and there's a lot more discussion about it and it was never really, it's not really a problem. I mean, there's always ways around it. Disabled people are fully, you know, able to have functioning, healthy sex lives. So, Have any of you had the you're a great friend, but line? Yeah, it went on for years. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I jokingly said to my wife recently that I think, you know, after acquiring the kind of the wife, the house, the children, there were many more opportunities for affairs than there ever were for dates. Um, because I do think, I don't know, maybe maybe things have changed because I, I suppose I was dating in the maybe 90s and into the early 2000s. But what I found was that it was with some of those normal trappings of life that actually then sort of gave me credentials and, and cred, which is kind of strange. But that's the way it always that's the way it felt. I felt I had I had loads and loads. I was never short of platonic relationships and friendships over the years. And sometimes I found it very hard to negotiate and read my way through what was platonic and what wasn't. And I, I found it quite tedious. How um, do you counter that? I don't know. You just... I think you just plough ahead and uh, essentially, you know, you do find people in your life that take you seriously. And, uh, you know, I know in the case of my wife, she's one of those people who takes me very seriously, but she takes no crap either. And that's how I know she takes me seriously. And that's, I think, a really important thing for me is to find people in my life who are to found friendships where people take me seriously for who I am and we can be on a level but sometimes that takes that takes time <laughs> um, I think uh, dating culture is a new thing in Ireland in general so um, Irish people are appalling at it yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, it's a it's something we're all kind of we're in the the toddler years of dating in Ireland because it really only became it used to be you used to just shift in the bar and then see what happens later on. But now because of the introduction of dating apps, people are now actually doing the formal thing of dating, asking people out. So in general, people are getting better at talking about dating, love and sex in Ireland. And then part of that conversation, because we are kind of moving slightly progressively towards things, that is an inclusive conversation and it includes disability as well. And in a way, I think, um, because I, I actually had a show in the Fringe festival three years ago called Why Won't You Have Sex With Me which was all about sex and disability and my big gripe was the word stigma was always used and that word stigma came from non-disabled journalists emailing me asking me about the how active my sex life was and I realised that that was the problem there was a fixation by people in the media on an idea that isn't as widespread as they wanted to think they like to kind of push this idea like what Marianne was saying about kind of like the villain or that they kind of want when it comes to sex and disability people want to view non-disabled people as uh, being sad and alone and not finding anyone to be in love with and that just isn't that isn't the case and the way that everybody struggles with love and sex and dating it's for non-disabled people and disabled people. Like so, like if you take any people in any room, you'd be like, how's your sex life? No one will be able to answer that honestly. Um, unless they have an amazing sex life and then you don't want to hear from them because no one <laughs> likes that person anyway. <laughs> um, but that's just kind of how it rolls. And I do think that it has been 
I do think the media has uh, taken a very irresponsible move with the way that sex and disability is framed because it's been fetishized, puts people in this sort of inspiration role, disabled people in this inspiration role, um, which is just cruel because um, when it comes to sex and disability, we're all just trying to make our way through life and we don't need any other curveballs thrown in uh, by this kind of fictional idea. I do think, though, Marion, your point earlier on about the fact that people that point you identify I think is is a very tricky one and I think the you know the issue of you know whether you're totally upfront about that whether you disclose early on whether you put it on your profile picture I think that's that must be an incredible picture or pressure and I'm kind of glad that I (laughs) was able to avoid all that kind of dating call I remember the one I used to get when I'd be going out was do you drive Oh God. That was the one where people would kind of. Do you have a car? Oh, that's for men. Men get that a lot. Women yeah, but 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 I think because it was kind of a way of testing how bad my eyesight yeah. was without asking directly. Yeah. Um, I think with um with choosing when to identify, like when to disclose that you have a disability, I think you should go from the get go because it is actually one of. It is, there's a very strange silver lining in it where you kind of you weed out who's good and who's bad quite early on. Yeah. Yeah. And like I, I will say my good experiences way tear over the bad experiences like maybe in my entire life like maybe two there would have been two men who would have taken a not so favourable approach towards my disability but the rest of it is just fine and I think people just there has been a fear that has been created and in the same way when anyone is creating a dating profile you have to be brave in promoting yourself because that's what you're doing you are promoting yourself and people have hang-ups and you just kind of have to kind of like go on that's it Yeah I think I agree as well with Louise like definitely from the the get-go like I did both actually like Mariam said I kind of put up a picture of me without my wheelchair and this is when I was going through a bit of a phase of Will I put it up or not? And then I said, why? Why would it bother? Because at the end of the day, it cuts through all of that. The person that you actually want to spend time with is the person that you enjoy being with. You know, so I like that. I think it comes down to around disability and pride. I've been proud to be disabled. And when I got over that issue of, will I, won't I? I just like that ploughed on and said, no, I am who I am. If they don't like me, let them off. And just on that point as well, online dating, like, as I said, I put it up that I was disabled, pictures, etc. And I met my fiancé online, so it is, there is success stories out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still have six months to go to marriage, so we'll see. <laughs> but um, no, I think definitely, you should definitely straight up, you're disabled, yeah. that's it. It's who you are. It's part of your identity. So I think it's vitally important. I love how we keep saying plow on with, <laughs> with, with sex. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly plow on. Yeah. <laughs> We're coming to the end of this chat. So a quick run around all of you with this question. What is the one thing you think would change how society sees disabled citizens? Who wants to start? James? Um, I think um, media representation um, and the media has a massive role to play in terms of, I often say, like, you never turn on the TV in Ireland and see um, a disabled presenter up beside Lucy Kennedy on mm-hmm. Ireland's Got Talent or... Any kind of mainstream um, uh, main person um, as disabled, and I think uh, even our in our books um, from a young age, like if children see that a disabled person is in their books, is in in their cartoons, in all sorts of programs, I think that's where it's going to start changing because it just becomes the norm of what 
every diverse uh, society or what a diverse society looks like? Um, mine would be quite similar to James's, wherein um, I think my role as a disabled woman is far more important as a music journalist than it is as a journalist who just writes about disability because I bring disability into music and I'm able to talk about the audience and what we need. And I think that that is, I think that's hugely beneficial and applies to most other industries and careers. Instead of seeing the disabled person and their only thing they can bring to the table is their disability, bring them to the table and allow them to do what it is that they want to do because then they are kind of meeting two worlds in the centre and that is the only way to get people thinking outside the box and to move things forward. Um, I suppose, you know, simply I would be inclined to say get to know and engage with more disabled people. It's an extension of what both James and Louise have said. It's just, I find even with my, my own kids, the more of my friends with disabilities that they know the different perspectives it gives them on people's lives. And actually they are, they just become their friends. And it's vitally important, as Louise says, that we see people in their different roles, doing their different things, and actually that we engage with them on those different levels, be it as artists or journalists or politicians or you know, whatever role it happens that they happen to be in, it's seeing people across those those roles, but also uh, seeing their disability and, and what both they as a person and their disability brings to whatever it is they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually going to say the same thing as Louise and James. And even in the last 10 years, I've felt represented now as um, a person of colour, as a woman. I see that happening a lot in the media, but still I don't feel representation for disabled people that way. I can't resonate with that on any level, even just in like TV shows or movies. And the other thing I'd like to see is our movement gaining traction in terms of a collective rights-based movement gathering momentum because I don't think the disability rights movement has had the same momentum as other movements so I think that would also be important so they tie in together On that note I'd like to bring this edition of Between the Lines on News Talk to a close My thanks to the panel for sharing their experiences. This show wouldn't have happened without the Between the Lines team. That includes Simon Keane and Neil Cavana. And of course, my editor Stephen Jordan, who really took me out of my comfort zone by asking me to present the program. Thanks to Andrea for allowing me to sit in this seat. She'll be back next week. So on that note. Between the Lines on News Talk.